0: This is Black Autonomy.
1: Hello. Welcome to episode seven of the Black Autonomy Podcast. My name is Jonina Irvin. Today we have a special edition of the Black Autonomy Podcast. Tonight we'll be discussing Black Anarchism Across the Generations, a conversation between Lorenzo Camboa Irvin and William Anderson. Lorenzo was a member of one of the first Black anarchist collectives in the United States and the author of the classic book, Anarchism and the Black Revolution. He's from the generation that was born known as the baby boom generation, born in the years immediately after World War II. William Anderson is a Black anarchist millennial author, author of the just released book, Nation on No Map. And congratulations, William, on the release of that book. And with the rise of of Black anarchism and the growing popularity of it in recent years, it's important to take a look at how this has appealed to the older generation that Lorenzo is part of and the younger millennial generation that William is part of. So we can understand what the appeals are, the differences, the similarities. So let's get started. Lorenzo, why did you become an anarchist? How did you arrive at your radical ideals?
2: Well, first of all, I had been a civil rights and later anti-war activist while I was in the service in the, in the mid-1960s on to my time in 69. But I became an anarchist after I was arrested for hijacking a plane to Cuba and was brought back to the United States. And I met Martin Sastry. In that period, between when I left the United States in the early part of the year of 69, and later on, when I came back in late 69, I had been exposed to the reality of state socialism, both in Cuba, in Eastern Europe, and had seen what these societies were really like. And also, I had come to the stage where I had been looking for something to replace my personal political ideology other than state socialism, other than the black civil rights movement, or even black power. I've been looking for something deeper than that. And so when I came back to the United States, I was brought back and placed in the federal house of detention in New York City. I met Martin Sostry, who was one of the best known political prisoners in the world. And he was uh, there in that facility, suing the officials of the state prison system for violating you know, the human rights of prisoners. And also demanding that prisoners be given the same rights to read literature, Black and radical literature, and that they have the same rights to, you know, if they're accused of something, they have to be given a a hearing and the right to believe in whatever religion they believe in and so forth and so on. So we used to have daily discussions about politics. And so he started talking to me about anarchism. And at the time, I didn't have any clue what anarchism was. I I, I knew it was something that didn't pertain to Black people, or so I thought. And he explained some things to me that opened my mind much broader, made me understand that anarchism wasn't just for white people, or wasn't just the European doctrine alone. And he also explained to me the tenets of radical forms of anarchism, and brought me to where I am uh, today in terms of being a Black autonomous or revolutionary anarchist. Okay. So, William, Lorenzo
1: became involved in Black anarchism in 1969, which was long before your time. But tell us, why did you become an anarchist? How did you get your radical ideals?
0: The thing that made me start questioning and looking into anarchism was I was experiencing a lot of disillusionment with the left. And I was listening to a lot of the dialogue that was happening between different factions of the left and getting kind of tired of this kind of conventional leftism. And so I started exploring different aspects of the left that I hadn't really been familiar with to see what I was maybe uh, potentially missing. And I started looking into anarchism a bit more But like Lorenzo had mentioned, I thought that it was just a white radicalism that was individualistic, that had no analysis of anything outside of destruction and and, and chaos uh, just for the hell of it. And I didn't really come across anyone or anything that challenged that notion and that idea of anarchism I had in my mind until I actually met the both of you. The first anarchist I'd actually ever read was Rudolph Rocker. I read the anarcho-syndicalism pamphlet and I was interested in it, but the first time I really read about anarchism and had it appealed to me in the way that I felt made sense to me as a black activist and organizer, I was reading Lorenzo. And it was uh, the conversation I had the first time that I met the both of you in Memphis um some years back where I was really saying, okay, I think that this might be something that I need to look further into. And so after I initially met y'all and had that conversation at an organizers workshop that you both came and spoke at, um, that sent me on the path to doing the reading myself and looking into alternative forms of socialism that thought outside of the state. So that was a whole journey for me in a similar way to the story that you just expressed around meeting Martin. It was meeting y'all that did it for me. So passing on that information to me was how it started. And that was how I started down the path to studying and embracing the politics of Black anarchism.
1: Lorenzo, you had mentioned, and William did as well, the fact that before you actually got introduced to anarchism and spoke with Martin Sastry, that you had sort of believed that Anarchism was just something that was largely a white movement. However, at some point, did you become influenced by European classical anarchists? And if so, who were they and why did they influence you
2: as a black activist? Well, I didn't actually read anything concerning anarchism until I, you know, met Martin Sosprey. I hadn't read any books or anything. Whatever I received, instruction I received came from him and his uh, daily explanation of what anarchist terms meant and so forth. And after I went to prison and was able to order books or was able to bring books into the uh, prisons, the first book I read, as I can remember, was a book by a figure out of the Russian Revolution with the name Volin, and the, the name of the book was called The Unknown Revolution. And this book blew my mind because I never knew any of these things had happened I never knew that there had been a revolution within the the Russian Revolution. You know, it wasn't just a Bolshevik revolution, as they want you to believe. The Russian Revolution was was more widespread and had more political tendencies than people were in this part of the world, or in most parts of the world, were led to believe. And so being exposed to this, being exposed to the different movements and being exposed to the different individuals and what their beliefs and ideas were served to strengthen my concerned about what I was reading and to bring me more under the uh, the aegis of anarchism, you know, broadly. And even though in America, I, I never was sympathetic to the American anarchists. And the reason for that is because most of them were middle class. They were primarily pranksters rather than serious political tendencies. As we've all three of us have said, what they were talking about that time had nothing to do with the plight of black people and uh, working class people at that time. And so when I read the book, the book opened my mind up to anarchism at a broader base level. And I started continually reading and uh, books on anarchism after that time. And I politically educated myself. William, you
1: mentioned, I believe, just a minute ago, a booklet that you may have read that may have been uh, a European classical anarchist. But were there others that you read? And why and how did those influence you?
0: Yeah, so Rudolf Rocker was the first classical anarchist I ever read. His book, Anarcho-Syndicalism, it's uh, more of a pamphlet, really, uh, was the first text that I ever read in that sense. But after I read Lorenzo, it opened me up to actually revisiting classical anarchism in a way that I hadn't prior. I felt like I needed the Black interpretation of anarchism to actually read classical anarchism and understand it better. So after Lorenzo kind of opened up the door for me with his analysis, I started looking more into other classical anarchists and gaining more insight that way. So for me, I think that the ones that stand out would definitely be Malatesta as well as Kropotkin, and definitely have read Bakunin quite a bit at this point. But they didn't always appeal to me. I think the one that always appealed to me the most in terms of the classical anarchists was definitely Malatesta. I always appreciated the straightforward, clear voice in Malatesta's writing. Um, Also read Goldman, of course, and even have gone as far as reading William Godwin, and the list goes on and on. I've read plenty of them. Stirner, I've read a lot of the classic texts, but the ones that always stood out to me were the ones who had the clearest, most straightforward writing. And for me, that was always Malatesta. That was always a rocker and Kropotkin, too, I'd say. So I always appreciated the analysis being pretty legible for me.
1: Lorenzo, a topic that you and William have both discussed in the past is this issue of the need for Black people, oppressed people, as we're fighting the system, uh, to become ungovernable. How do you think we can become ungovernable in the period we're in right now and begin to
2: declare urban sovereignty? I think that this is not the only historical moment when we can can talk about being ungovernable. I, I think in large respect, the 1960s were ungovernable. I even think that the the period of the 1960s, if you compared it to the 1905 revolution, for instance, it was just as thoroughgoing going and deep a movement in opposition to the government as there ever has been in the United States. So I think that we've seen the example of ungovernability, of having a radical movement that the government could not control or could not force to negotiate and so forth. Now, in this period, we have to talk about being able to create alternative institutions that deepen the ties between the people and the movement in opposition to the people and the government. So one of the things we have to do is go beyond just thinking of anarchism as a political ideology, but to think of it in terms of practical organizing, bringing in masses of people, uniting with masses of people, having it so that instead of the police being able to walk in and shoot people or walk in through the neighborhood and brutalize people, Make our neighborhoods into no-go zones, for instance. That's part of the practical thing we need to think of. We need to think of taking away from the whole idea of giving the capitalist political parties any authority in, in our communities at all and creating alternatives to them in terms of direct democracy as well as a dual power. We need to think in terms of that. And by dual power, what I'm saying is that we have an alternative to the political structure. You know, we're not recognizing the, the authority of the political structure anymore. We're saying we're building an alternative, and we're also fighting them every step of the way to break down their base of power. So I think if we look at it in terms of that it's a consistent struggle, a consistent struggle to overthrow those in power, whether we can do it in five years or 20 years or whatever, but we need to understand it in terms of that and not in terms of just coming up with a single-issue campaigns and calling that a revolution. It's not a revolution. just because you've got a campaign that raises one issue, and that issue can bring out hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million people or so, and you still can't manage to force any real concessions from them, from the state, and you still can't manage to put them on the defensive. That is not on the revolutionary road at all. That's on the road to more reformism and cooperation with the state. So we're saying that we need to start building in the communities themselves, among the poor people themselves, we need to start building an alternative structure and an alternative movement and an alternative culture. You can call it a revolutionary counterculture. That's fine by me. I don't care what you call it. But I'm just saying that we need to be able to build this as an objective to beat down the government and the government's authority. And so if we look at it in terms of a counter institution or, or series of counter-institutions. We've seen the ability of this. We've seen it in other countries. We've seen people build counter-institutions, build counter-economies. We've seen people do this. We just have not seen it in a country like the United States or a country that is a so-called advanced capitalist country. But we know that it can happen. And this is one of the things that we need to start to erect. But we can't do it in terms of the non-profit structure. I, I don't get this idea of what people claim to be fighting the government or fighting the capitalist power structure, but at the same time, they want to get government grant money or grant money from the corporations. I don't get that. So we have to turn our back on that entirely. We have to ideologically defeat their agents who believe that and practice that sort of thing, as well as create, the, as I said, the counterculture or the counter-revolutionary movement in opposition to the existing authorities.
1: Hi, I'm Jonina Irvin. And I'm Lorenzo Irvin. We're the host of the Black Autonomy Podcast, and we're glad you're taking the time to listen to the show. We've been doing this work for many years now, and we've seen a lot of things. From the Civil Rights Movement to the Black Power Movement to now, we've been there, often on the front lines, fighting police brutality, imprisonment, and even death. So now we're trying
2: to share some of the things we know. Much of the things we've done, like many others fighting alongside us, has not been compensated work. That's why we'd like to ask a favor now. If you don't mind, could you support our efforts to continue our work and this show? You can subscribe and become a patron by visiting
1: patreon.com front slash autonomy. That's patreon, P A-T-R-E-O-N dot com front slash autonomy. It'll only take a minute of your time, and we greatly appreciate any help anyone can offer. Thanks for listening. So William, from your standpoint as a millennial anarchist, what are your thoughts about how we become ungovernable right now and this whole issue of declaring urban sovereignty?
0: Well, I think that one of the most important things that we have to make clear for people is that this whole notion of picking up the slack of the state that you hear people saying that they're not going to want to do any work to pick up the slack of the state or fill in the gaps of the state, I think that we have to kind of push back against this idea that the state is on the hook to begin with, that the state is functioning improperly and that the way that we're neglected and that the way that we're oppressed by the state is something that's happening as some sort of malfunction. That's not the case. So I think that we have to make clear to people, first and foremost, that the state, when it oppresses us and actually does things to marginalize us in our communities, that's not a malfunction. That's not something it's doing improperly. That's that's not an accident. The same way with police committing extrajudicial killings in our communities. These aren't things that happen because the police are um, in need of a reform or they're in need of a change that uh, needs to adjust them or fix them or make them work better, it's because those things are oppressive structures that are designed to do exactly what they're doing. So I always try to think about it first and foremost from an anarcho-abolitionist perspective that is challenging the idea that these things are not doing what they're supposed to do. And I think that that's uh, such an important first step because a lot of times people reject the whole notion of what we're talking about because they don't want to do anything before they feel like they've exhausted all means of trying to fix the problem or reform the problem. So I think that first and foremost, we have to actually change the mindset to make people realize that these things have to be delegitimized in our minds before we carry out the actions that Lorenzo is talking about, because that's where people are going to have to go first is delegitimizing these things in our minds. So that They can do what Lorenzo is talking about to carry out the actions and have that organizing that will actually push back against the state because the state's not going to obviously just let people upend it or threaten it. There's obviously been plenty of black people throughout history who tried to do it and it cost them their lives. It cost them their freedom. So first and foremost, once we actually delegitimize it in our minds and begin doing that organizing work and find our respective places find what we can contribute to building autonomy and to rejecting the state and pushing back against it, we have to connect those efforts across the country and uh, actually start trying to build an entire network of that power and actually connecting our efforts to make sure that we have something sustainable Rather than something that can just be defeated because it's happening in one place and it's not connected to not just networks in this country, but across the world, building an international solidarity and uh, building an international global movement that is rejecting the state. So I think that that's just a a one way that I'm thinking about it right now.
1: Lorenzo, black anarchism uh, in recent years is becoming increasingly popular. What do you think accounts for that
2: popularity? Well, I don't honestly know. And I've never thought of it in terms of what I was writing or what I was saying had become popular all of a sudden. I do think that at a certain stage, the contradictions in radical political thought, for one thing, has been such a crisis. That's been one thing. The other thing is the defeats continually, just as William was saying, the defeats by the state of the left and left ideology and the way that they have been pigeonholed into electoral politics. I think that has a lot to do with people finally dropping what was then the current political ideology and also the collapse of authoritarian socialism and authoritarian ideology have had a lot to do with this, so that anarchism generally itself has become popular. And then within the popularity of anarchism, you have Black people wanting to become part of this movement, but to build their own tendencies within the movement. So I think that that has had a lot to do with it. And not to belittle the fact that myself and others who created the original Black Anarchist Federation, Black Autonomy, provided an example of what can happen and how to do it. And also, the book, Anarchism and the Black Revolution, provided an ideological framework so that people could read not just what I was saying, but what the interpretation I was making along with other authors and along with laying out the historical legacy and also talking about what was then taking place in society, you know, what Black people were doing in the 1960s. That's why I call it anarchism and the Black Revolution, because as I say it, I contend there was a Black Revolution taking place at that time. And not all revolutions succeed, to be quite honest, but that doesn't mean that they weren't revolutions. But the Black Revolution, what was happening, and anarchist political thought and theories had some value. Unfortunately, the white anarchists themselves didn't see that, but I saw it. And I was able to eventually work with other young Black people, some of whom saw it as well, and we created a tendency. And we've gone through many years of different formations. But the movement as a whole has still stayed around. So, because of what Black Autonomy has done and what the book Anarchism and the Black Revolution, its relevance and importance over the years, has opened the door for this to happen. At this particular time now, William knows better than I do about the current political things that are making it happen, you know, right now. He knows about those cultural and political things. I don't know so much about that. I just know about it from the long view. I'm taking the long view from 1969 up to the current period. And that's based on what I know and what I've experienced. And, you know, and also being able to write about the anarchist politics, put it within framework so that anyone can understand it. So, William, what are your opinions about this
1: growing popularity of Black anarchism? What do you think accounts for it?
0: Well, social media has played a major role in that. Even the way that I came across Black anarchism by meeting y'all and speaking with you, I think about that as opposed to the way that the internet and the way that social media is functioning now and the way that Black anarchism is proliferating as a topic of discussion and as a politic that many people are embracing. It's a completely different experience. And I wonder what it would have been like if I had read about Lorenzo on the internet before I met you at that organizing workshop that I was working at. So I think that that's played a huge role, but also the creation of new tendencies, of new thought, of people putting forth their own organizing efforts, their own theory has all contributed, as well as organizations who embrace Black anarchism as uh, part of their principles and, and part of the uh, anarchist tradition, though it's obviously distinct. So I think that all of those things have kind of bubble together at the same time to feed generations of people to come in a way that's absolutely necessary. As far as the left goes, what people are looking for has not always been found in what we know as the left so far. And I think that that happens because Black anarchism and the politics of anarchism generally have been overlooked in a large way that has to be addressed and has to be confronted. So I think that there's something there that people are looking for that they haven't found yet. And they're asking questions because of the state of the world. So they're exploring these overlooked politics because if things were the way that they needed to be, then the world probably wouldn't look the way that it does.
1: Levin, so a few minutes ago, you talked about anarchism and the black revolution, which you wrote the first edition in 1979. Now, most recent edition has just come out 42 years later, and you spent a little bit of time talking about it. I just one other thing I wanted to ask you about anarchism and the Black Revolution. What do you think accounts for its enduring relevance over four decades, 42
2: years? Well, I think first of all, it's accessible. It has always been accessible, even though it talks about complicated political theories it explains it to people so that they will be able to understand it, which is a problem in American and also radical ideology or radical theories. So that's the first thing. It's easy to understand. The second thing is, for anarchists, a movement which has pretty much not been an intellectual movement or used intellectual theories to any real or serious degree, this is political education, as it was told to me by a young anarchist. This was political education for anarchists, so that people could read this book and they could get in one volume the largest amount of information about anarchist politics. The first edition was written in 1979 inside of a prison cell in Marion, Illinois. And I went to great extent to get the literature to refer to in the footnotes. I went to great extent to read on a long-term basis. I'd been an anarchist 10 years before this book came out. So I'd been studying a long time so that I would have real perspective on what I was talking about. And also, as a Black man in a majority white movement with a history that's Eurocentric, at least that's the way they dealt with it, I had to demystify a great deal of the European essence of it to talk about why this movement why this book was saying that this movement of anarchism, in fact, is an international movement, is a universal movement. It isn't just for white people. So the fact that a black man is writing this book and is giving the perspectives in it, which is really different from what most books were back then. If you had anybody writing about anarchism, it was outright lies or, or propaganda or, or, or some tome that you couldn't understand at all if you read it for the most part. And so I wrote it with the intention of making the contents clear. So I think that that's the main thing. People understood it and they understood that it was calling for a certain kind of radicalism. First of all, I'm a socialist. I was always a socialist. And I was taught anarchist socialism by Martin Saustreet. He placed it within the context that there was two to three different types of socialism. One socialism was what you see in Europe and what you hear talked about now, democratic socialism, so-called. And there was also Stalinism and Marxist-Leninism. That also Was socialism now? Both of those were statist, though, and then you had a non-statist form of socialism, anarchist socialism. And when I when it was presented to me, it literally blew my mind. I just didn't quite understand how this could possibly be the case, and how I'd never heard of it. I thought I was a well-read individual as far as you know political theory and so forth, but I had no knowledge whatsoever of anarchist socialism, and this was not what the anarchist movement was even talking about at the time in the 1960s. So I had to do original thinking, original writings, to bring it to the point where people could even understand the full body of work that had gone forth by various activists, not just by me. So from that standpoint, the first edition, somebody said it was shocking, actually. And they said it was shocking because nobody had done it like this. And the fact that, you know, as a Black person, I would never have been given very much recognition having done this book, and for being a black radical thinker within the anarchist movement. I've never been given that, even to this day for that matter. So I think it was an important book for that reason. And it has brought us to this period. It's brought us to this time now where all the contradictions are made clear. All the lies and all the propaganda and even the, the things related to statism entirely have been shorn, have been stripped naked, so that everybody can see it. They can see that we've been living with lies all these years, And now we're at the stage where new revolutionary ideas and new theories and new organizing techniques are possible and we can win with them. So I think that's what the book did. It opened up the possibility of people's eyes to something new that they could relate to, but that at the same time had the possibility of winning. William, your new book that has just been published, it's called
1: Nation on No Map. What is the meaning of the title of your book? Tell us about that.
0: So the title of the book actually comes from a reference to a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks. And her poem is about the Blackstone Rangers or the gang formerly known as the Blackstone Rangers in Chicago. And in that poem, she describes the leadership of the Blackstone Rangers. And she has a line where she says their country is a nation on no map. And so ultimately, it ties into a larger point that I'm trying to make in my text about the way that Black people in the U.S., but also across the world experience a sort of statelessness and that we can't just go to any other place and run to any other state expecting that that's going to grant us um, some sort of liberation. And so That's one of the reasons that I reference someone like Lorenzo throughout the text, because I think that Lorenzo is a prime example. The experience that you had after uh, you fled to Cuba, the experience you had in Czechoslovakia and um, in your travels and your experiences and your encounters with state socialism is just one example of many that I've been finding throughout Black history of people finding out that The state in its many variations can inflict harm and do damage so that for people who experience this sort of statelessness and recognize such, we can identify that the state, the nation state form is actually one of the biggest threats to the world uh, because of the way that it takes oppression and creates a monopoly on violence and freezes it in a form of really uh, damaging power. That happens across the globe, and it's not just exclusive to the United States. So for Black people to recognize this, I call Black America and the nation on no map in this text because of that. And so I'm really also drawing from that with regard to the poem, but also just more largely in reference to that sort of lack of citizenship and the promises of citizenship that Black people experience too.
1: I understand. Lorenzo, in Anarchism and the Black Revolution, you do spend some time talking about Black nationalism as an organizing principle. What do you believe
2: are the benefits or limitations of Black nationalism? Well, I've always felt that it's important that Black people have an autonomous political tendency that deals with our conditions, oppression and servitude, That is important. And I'll give you the example that most Black people, when they think of fascism and all the appeals that have been made, all the organizing that's been made, the first thing they point to is genocide, that Black people have been subjected to or are being subjected to genocide. They don't say that they're talking about, as many of the white radicals do, just a question of some rights or something or other. They're talking about not just the quality of life, but the possibility of life. If people are being shot and killed in the street by the police, and so what's happening is not just violating someone's rights. They are subjecting them to genocide. This is part of an entire program on a long-term basis. So I think that Black like nationalism, nationalism itself, not the political nationalism, but the ideas of nationalism as Black autonomy, yes, we are distinct people. We are an oppressed people. Our labor created the the capitalist system in this country and created the whole country of the United States. But we've not been allowed or have been prevented from fighting for our own freedom, part of by the white radicals who claim that we should follow behind them, that they have the answer and so forth. So I look at almost the Black nationalists, depending on what tendencies we're talking about, because there are all kinds of tendencies. And I always make the distinction that there was a revolutionary Black nationalism, and then you got bourgeois nationalism. And, you know, revolutionary nationalism like the Black Panther Party, they weren't trying to build a state. They were trying to destroy the state, destroy capitalism, not to resurrect it in another form. So we make this distinction between there is Black nationalism, but there is certain forms of Black nationalism that's more progressive than others. And that would require a deeper study and deeper analysis. But I think we can say that in this period, all that we have is a reactionary nationalism. That's basically all we have, a reactionary, opportunistic nationalism with these petty bourgeoisie forces related to the state, to the Democratic Party or the the Republicans, for that matter, whomever. Even the ones picking up guns, they don't represent like the Black Panther Party did the quest to fight against fascism. They may be a fascist tendency. They may be a Black fascist tendency, for all we know. I mean, this is where we talk about reactionary politics of Black nationalism, as opposed to, like I said, the. The revolutionary politics. Uh, William, in your book, Nation on No Map,
1: you talk about this issue of African royalty and symbolism, such as Wakanda in the film Black Panther. Why did you write about this? What point are you trying to make?
0: There's several points I'm trying to make. A few of them are that there's this idea that Black America needs to return to this lost royalty and this lost inheritance. And this kind of quest for redemption will help us get out of the circumstances that we're in. But when you study Black history and you look at the slave trade and you gain some deeper insight, you see that not everything that existed prior to the slave trade was exactly ideal as well as the slave trade itself needs to be complicated in uh, the way that we understand it. This idea that black people are a homogenous group that is all descended from kings and queens just isn't true. And I actually think that it feeds into a dangerous sort of romanticization of hierarchy and a lot of romanticization of wealth that I think reinforces a sort of black capitalism. So I was asking questions about this when I was writing the text. And ultimately, I wanted to push back against that idea because I think that there's something to be said about where we are now and where we could go in the future. If we reject um, this idea that we are royalty fallen from grace or that we need wealth or monarchy or you know, aristocracy or these sorts of things to make us valuable as people. I don't think that we need those things to make us valuable or to free us. I think that actually a rejection and a overturning of those ideas is much more liberating than trying to seek freedom through them.
1: And for the final question, William, I'm going to give the final question to you. How do you believe that Black anarchists have to deal with white anarchists who refuse to recognize the tendency of black anarchism?
0: For me personally, I don't think that it's absolutely necessary to be recognized by white anarchists. Uh, Black anarchists like Lorenzo and people who've done the foundational work for these politics have already long established the distinction between black anarchism and white anarchism. And I think that actually the need for Lorenzo to write a text like Anarchism and the Black Revolution is one of the primary failures of classical anarchism. And I think that if that wasn't a weakness of the canon itself, Lorenzo wouldn't have had to come forth and write a book like that in the first place. So I think that this idea that there needs to be recognition or that Black anarchism needs to be included in the canon and the historical understanding and context of anarchism isn't necessarily the point. I think the point is that Black anarchism shows that what we can do is take what's good from history and from traditions and politics and radicalism, and we can discard what's not good and we can move forward in truth and honesty. And I think that that is something that we have to embrace in our day to day lives as well. So there's intentional misreadings. There's people who say slanderous things. There's people who uh, want to uphold their idols and, you know, want to really be attached to dogma and doctrine. But when we start to look at the truth of history and the truth of the current predicament we're in and move forward in honesty, then that's not something that requires us to try to push for some sort of false left unity or anything like that. It actually tells us who's ready to fight alongside us and who's not. So if somebody's not accepting, that's on them. And I don't think that that's really a concern of mine to try to convince them otherwise.
1: Well, I want to thank both of you, Lorenzo Camboa Irvin, author of the classical book, Anarchism and the Black Revolution, and William Anderson, author of the newly released book, Nation on No Map, for our discussion for Episode 7 of the Black Autonomy Podcast on Black Anarchism Across the Generations. Thank you both, and thank you all for joining us. Hope to see you next time.